If you'll join with me, today's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel 21, and we'll just read verses 1 through 2. In our Pew Bibles, this is page 273. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. We are starting to wrap up 2 Samuel, so we're going to be beginning to land the plane in the next several weeks. So tray tables up, seatbelts on, you know, you know, that whole gig. So just the last few chapters here, that's what we're going to be doing. I've been praying about what our next series is going to be. Uh, been leaning towards the Gospel of John or Revelation. So you can pray to see which one or something totally different comes up. Totally open to that. Um, but um, as we're wrapping up 2 Samuel, it, it's actually taking us back in the narrative. Um, God? <laughs> I see the light. No. Um, it, it's taking us back in the narrative, and we're going back in time a little bit, chronologically speaking. So it's not just chronologically and then this famine's happening. We're actually going to be chronologically speaking, picking up after 2 Samuel chapter 9. This is where verses 1 through 14 takes place. And looking at 2 Samuel chapter 21 verse 7, you'll read that David brought Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, to Jerusalem before the famine. So, so what happened in verses 1 through 14 is what's happened after chapter 9. And so it's, it's something that Saul did many years ago that, that put David's kingdom under a curse and, and that we have this famine now. And so some of you may be thinking, like, why a three-year famine? Let's look back to Leviticus, starting in chapter 26, verse 18, and maybe this is a reason why. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. So perhaps Israel is not listening to God. And so this is what David wants to figure out in verse 1. David sought the face of the Lord. And here's a very, very important point from this morning, that seeking the face of the Lord, it always brings illumination. It always brings things to, to light. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, who are the Gibeonites? We are given a reminder of who they are in verse 2. And if you want more details about who they are, you can read Joshua chapter 9. That's where the Gibeonites are found. To summarize that chapter, the Gibeonites were pagans who tricked Israel and their leaders about living on the land and had the Israelites swear to them to spare their lives. And so the Israelites swore before the Lord to give Gibeon 
immunity from this death. And so Saul violates Israel's oath to them, which then taints God's reputation. Because if you are people of God and you're not doing what you say you're going to do, then they kind of question, well, who's the God that you serve? And can the Lord your God be dependent on? Is he a reliable God? And what does his name mean if his people don't even keep to their word? And so this is a violation of a commandment of the Lord. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So swearing this oath in the Lord's name means that those who swear in God's name are also asking God to curse them should they fail to keep this covenant word that they make. And it's what's happening here in 2 Samuel chapter 21. Saul's zeal for the people of Israel and Judah violate the covenant of the Lord. And so there's this famine as a curse of this violation. And it's, it's vengeance for the Gibeonites, right? Vengeance is the Lord's. It's not ours. And, and the Lord's name has been desecrated. And so there's this discipline. And this is the cause of the curse. But... As this is a curse, the other side of the coin is that this is also God's mercy. And you're wondering, like, how in the world can famine be merciful? Well, here it is, is that when you seek God's face, God doesn't ignore you. See, God doesn't ignore David when David sought the Lord. And God told him exactly What's going on? See, God's not cruel about it, and he's not ignoring you about it. He's not being passive-aggressive, and he's not, go figure it out yourself. He's not any of those things. He plainly tells them. And he doesn't keep David in the dark. He actually gives David the way out. That God reveals the guilt of Israel so that that guilt can then be dealt with, and that's what mercy does. It's merciful to share with somebody what's going on. And so that mercy shines light on the guilt where the guilt isn't hidden anymore and it's, it's something that, that can be dealt with. God is kind. And God clearly tells us what our guilt is and that is a merciful thing. It would be so cruel to punish someone and they don't know why you did it. Right? So, so how do you know if something can be done about correcting some guilt that you did, if, if you're not told what's wrong. And, and so this is not God. God is kind. God is merciful. God will tell you what is wrong and how to go about correcting that. So David is told by God what's wrong. And David wants to make this wrong right. Starting back in verse 3. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them. 
between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. For us present-day westernized people, this just does not seem like a good solution. This does not seem like a peaceful way to deal with things. And, and in our mindset, a solution where more lives are lost is not, is not a great one. And that's something for us to keep in mind in terms of our mindset and our culture and how we look at things. Because in our minds, we would say, like, why don't they send some political delegation to negotiate some sort of compromise without further loss of life? Or maybe involve a third party to come in and, and put the two sides at the table and talk this thing out. But we have to go back into the mindset of a Gibeonite, of an Israelite. And in the mind of a Gibeonite, they experienced this very bloody wrath from Saul. And whatever material goods you're going to give, that, that's not going to settle the cost. Silver, gold, like land, that, that, that's not going to do it for us. See, Saul butchered the Gibeonites in their land, and Saul polluted the land of the Gibeonites with their blood. And David knows Numbers 35, 33, which reads this, You shall not pollute the land in which you live. The blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it except by the blood of the one who shed it. Well, Saul is the one who shed it, and he's dead. Saul spilled a lot of Gibeonite blood in their land. He violated a covenant oath that the leaders of Israel made with the Gibeonites back in Joshua 9. And according to customs, Israel's leaders swearing this oath also meant that God would bring wrath, a curse upon them if they break an oath. Joshua chapter 9, starting in verse 15. Well, we'll just read two verses there. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Skip down to verse 19. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. That's what was made in Joshua 9. And in Joshua 9, there's a very, very significant word that we have to keep in mind as we read 2 Samuel 21, and it's used four times in Joshua chapter 9. It's this Hebrew word, kaurat. And this word literally means to cut, to cut. So Israel cut a covenant with Gibeon. And so this is what happened. They brought this animal, the animal, most likely a cow, was cut into pieces and they were put on opposite sides of one another and those taking the covenant upon themselves and in this case the, the leaders of Israel, Joshua, and, and the leaders of Gibeon, they would walk in between these bloody cut pieces of the animal. And this is expressing that as this animal is cut up into these bloody pieces, if we don't keep this covenant oath that we're making with you, May we be like this cut animal that we're walking through if we don't keep the covenant with you. This is how serious we are about keeping this promise, about keeping this oath. So now, what the Gibeonites demand is that 
that be carried out. Our ancestors walked through this bloody animal carcass that was cut to cut an oath between our people. You broke it. This is what we expect now. You broke it. That was the oath made. That was what was violated. And now the Gibeonites want what was promised. So God's wrath of famine and the delivery from famine kind of proves that he's in support of what Gibeon wants. You made that oath in my name. Now you have to pay. And God mercifully showed where their guilt was through this famine, leading them to this place. And God's wrath was shown to them. And they were shown how the wrath was to be propitiated, satisfied. I hope you see where I'm going with this. The curse of the covenant needs to be carried out. And so when we hear propitiation, many of us think of Jesus. And we think of 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That a covenant was broken between us and God. A curse is upon us because of that violation. So God sent his son, Jesus, to propitiate that curse with blood. Propitiation is brutal, bloody, gory. And we can fast forward to verse 14 to read that God accepted that sacrifice of Saul's sons to turn away the wrath of breaking covenant. It satisfied that. And now Israel can move from a time of famine to now a time of favor. And Saul was king of Israel. He represented Israel when this covenant was broken. And it wasn't just Saul who was guilty. It was all of Israel. And the covenant with Gibeon in Joshua 9 was sworn by Israel's leaders on behalf of Israel. Saul was Israel's king. The leader broke this national covenant and it has to be propitiated. But Saul is dead. So how is he going to pay for something if he's already dead? He can't suffer the curse of breaking the covenant. And so Gibeon wants those who belong to Saul to suffer in his place, for them to stand in the place of Saul and Israel, and it's horrific. So going back to Jesus, and we're thinking of Adam breaking covenant, and then we think of Jesus, second Adam, who redeems that. And this is what atonement is. And we in the modern Western world we've really sterilized atonement. We've made it very clean. But atonement is horrible. It is bloody, it is gory, it is ghastly, it is gruesome, it is gross. And some people don't see atonement for what it really is. We read atonement as just a simple theology, a doctrine, a concept, but we don't get that picture of what it really is. Imagine yourself walking through a cut-up animal. Blood, guts, all that stuff everywhere. And the smell, and what it looks like, and what you're stepping in. Imagine it 
that way, and not just this sterilized, hygienic picture that we read when we open up a theology book or the Bible or whatever else, and we just kind of read it, and it's so clean because there's not a drop of blood on there at all. And we only look at this subject matter maybe once a year at Easter. And even at then, it's pretty clean. We don't think of it in this way where it's pretty gory. We, we water it down. We don't imagine a... Maybe that's one year we'll do that. We'll just put out a big tarp and we'll just put out like all the stuff. That would be a really great... You'll never forget that one, right? <laughs> but you see the Israelite worshiper observed how gruesome atonement is. That this young bull was towed to the tabernacle, its throat was slit. Carotid artery, blood, blah. It would be skinned and then cut into pieces and then washed. So you imagine the smell, you imagine the sight, you imagine what you're in, and all of these details are in Leviticus chapter 1, starting in verse 3, goes through verse 9. It's a bloody mess. It's, it's, it's really gory. And from Leviticus 1 all the way to Calvary, where our Lord atoned for our sins, God has never watered down how repulsive atonement really is. But we modern-day westernized Christians, we really need to be careful about how much we water down our faith because I think it's watered down quite a bit. We've diluted it quite a bit. We don't really look at this atonement like that. We gravitate towards a more kind and gentle picture of what atonement is. We like the picture of Jesus putting kids on his lap and we like all those sorts of warm fuzzies when atonement is nothing like that at all, it is very brutal, it is very bloody, it is very costly. And many people have just this too clean of a picture of the cross. It's something that I do appreciate about the Catholic Church. When they show a bloody, battered Jesus on the cross and you can kind of get the sense of that. I understand with Protestants and, and why Jesus is not there anymore because he's risen from the grave. And so we have a cross with flowers on it. I get it. Like Easter, right? Like I get that. But there's something to be said when you're, you're seeing a crucified Christ on there with the crown of thorns and the nails and the hands and the feet and the blood and the stab wound on the side and like all these things that you're seeing and that you can feel and you, you can see how messy atonement is and how bloody it is and how gory and costly where that stench of death is, is heavy wherever the wrath of God is propitiated. And so David handed over these seven descendants of Saul, his sons, to the Gibeonites. But David spares Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, because he also made a covenant. He made a covenant with Jonathan. Second Samuel, in chapter 20, verse 15, it reads this, or 1 Samuel, sorry, 1 Samuel 20, verse 15. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, this is Jonathan speaking with David, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And so David kept this covenant promise, this oath in 2 Samuel chapter 9, he did not give Mephibosheth over, and you know, Jonathan's son, this is Jonathan's son, to, to the Gibeonites, and the writer is purposely pointing out this contrast between David and Saul. 
Saul, the covenant breaker, David, the covenant keeper. He, he keeps his promise. And so here's Saul. He violates Joshua chapter 9, while David, the covenant keeper, he is faithful to that promise he made to Jonathan, 1 Samuel chapter 20. They're, they're very different. And so there was this wrath in Saul's violation, but there's this deliverance from wrath of Mephibosheth in the king who keeps his covenant. Mephibosheth would have been dead with those other brothers in the hands of the Gibeonites if David didn't keep his promise, didn't keep his oath. And so Mephibosheth finds refuge. He finds deliverance in David. That Mephibosheth could not be touched because of David's protection of him. And again, so you see where we're going with this with Jesus. Jesus, son of David, who is protecting us, who is protecting us from wrath. John chapter 6, verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, that Jesus, the son of David, is faithful to those of us who are his. John 17, starting in verse 11, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Skip down to verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And the son of David, Jesus, is our deliverance. He is our our refuge. John chapter 10, verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Those are the ones with Jesus. Those are the Mephibosheths who are with David, but then there are all of those other ones, all those seven brothers, all those other people who are not with Jesus and they will face the wrath of God. Back to 2 Samuel 21, starting in verse 10. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. Then David was told that what Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done. David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day of the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish his father, and they did all that the king commanded, and after that God responded to the plea for the land. So, the Gibeonites kill the seven descendants of Saul, the sons, Rizba is there to keep the birds, vultures and crows or whatever's going to be picking on these decomposing bodies and these predators at night like these wild dogs or whatever that come and they would just consume the bodies and that was one of the gruesome things about crucifixion because that's what they would do. They would leave these bodies on the cross and they'd just let birds of the air and animals of the land just pick apart these bodies because she's the mother of two of those sons that were killed. She doesn't want that to happen to her boys. She doesn't want that to happen to 
her relatives. So she can't stop the execution, but she's just acting out of motherly love. I don't want my boys to be picked apart like that. I don't want my relatives. We were a noble family. I don't want that to happen to them. And so she did what she could to, to guard them, to guard these decomposing bodies of her sons and, and the family by day and by night. And so you can imagine, this is really horrific. Decomposing bodies that she just watched over weeks, over months. We aren't given the exact time, but we know this, that barley harvest was in mid-April. The rains would come in October, November, normally. So if things were just normal, this is six to seven months as she's watching these bodies decompose. And again, you imagine that smell and the lack of sleep at night because she's trying to fight off these animals that come. And so just a horrific scene. And maybe it's not that long because maybe the rains, God said it's satisfied, curse lifted, wrath done, rain now. So maybe it's a few days, who knows? But if things were just normally played out, six to seven months, she's out there doing this. However long she's doing this for, David gets word that Rizpah is showing this devotion to her family, showing this devotion to her sons. And so David is moved by Rizpah's devotion, and so he gathers Saul's bones, he gathers Jonathan's bones from Jabesh Gilead, he gathers the bones from those that Rizpah was protecting and gave them a proper burial in their homeland in Benjamin. And so this is a very solemn, this is a very sad scene, and sometimes this is where we need to sit. I know oftentimes, you know, people want to say, like, hey, you go to church and, and it has to, you have to leave encouraged and you have to leave, like, oh, it has, you have to leave on a high note. In order to see mercy, in order to see the severity of breaking a covenant and the need for a savior, in order to see what atonement really is, in order to see what faithful covenant keeping is, it can't always be like that. There is a book of lamentations. There is a time of lament. And there is a time where we kind of just need to sit with this solemn, heavy, sad stuff. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, starting in verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end for all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. See, the modern westernized Christian does not like looking at the wrath of God. And we want to focus more on that kindness picture and that gentleness picture and ways that we can compromise and, and justice that can be paid off in other ways than the atonement is. Can't we just pay for that? Can't we just do something else? That's so bloody. 
And I think in many ways we've lost that kind of healthy fear of God. Psalm chapter 90, verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? We don't, we don't often stop to think about the wrath of God. And, and the psalmist addresses this, that we should. That we should. And 2 Samuel chapter 21 reminds us of this, as does the psalmist, that there are times that we need this Gebeah moment to be reminded of the tragedy of breaking covenant and our need for this bloody atonement. Otherwise, you experience the curse. You experience wrath. And this was what Jesus experienced on the cross. Our wrath. Our curse. Mark chapter 15, starting verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's why Christians around the world, that's why we celebrate Easter every year, to let this sadness sink in during Lent and during the Passion Week, to consider the wrath of God. First John chapter 4, verse 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus, the Son of David, is a covenant keeper who is our atonement for our sins. You picture that young bull that was slaughtered and spread across the land, and people walking through it to make a covenant. And we, as these broken people, like a Mephibosheth, who Jesus is saying, I'm your refuge. I will deliver you. I will pay that cost for you. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being our atonement. Thank you for being our deliverer, our refuge, that you do keep your promises no matter the cost. In your name, amen. We're going to take communion together. If you don't have those elements, please raise your hand. And I hope that this gives you a better picture of what these elements symbolize. You know, sometimes people are questioning why do you guys do that? Why, why do you have a sacrament where you're, you're like eating something symbolizing the broken body of Christ? Why are you drinking what's symbolizing the blood of Christ? Why do you guys do that? I hope 2 Samuel chapter 21 gave you a better picture as to why in terms of covenant, in terms of what it costs and how bloody it is and how gory it is and what atonement really means. So as we take this wafer symbolizing the broken body of Christ, may you picture in your mind that bloody covenant. We take this in Jesus' name. And as we take this fruit of the vine, again, that you think that through, that this isn't just another thing that we just do every week. 
but that you place yourself in the Israelite worshiper's shoes that understands what that young bull going into the tabernacle meant for atonement. And he promises to return for us. In Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, your word is true. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.